0: Welcome to Sharing the Spectrum and Autism Canada Podcast, an engaging series of discussions about relevant topics, including parenting, relationships, employment, education, nutrition, and so much more. We look forward to introducing you to people from our ASD community and sharing their perspectives on life and autism. And now, please enjoy this episode of Sharing the Spectrum and Autism Canada Podcast.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. This is Julie from Autism Canada, and I'm so excited about today's guest. Kara Diamond is a teacher, a teacher instructor, and an autism consultant at a large school board in Canada. Today, Kara and I will be speaking about her experiences in the classroom, as well as her new book, The Autism Lens, a resource for teachers and parents with a student on the autism spectrum. As a special note, in these days of work from home, please forgive the background noise and occasional barking dog. Thanks again for joining us and we hope you enjoy our conversation. So Kara, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you with us today and and we're super excited to talk to you about your book, The Autism Lens, and also um, just about your, your career and your path to how you became a teacher and why you wrote the book. So I love to start the podcast by talking about a little bit about yourself, introducing yourself, and also talking about your connection to autism and why why you do what you do and how you got here.
2: Thank you so much, first of all, for having me. Uh, I'm very excited. Now, I fell into this career. To me, it felt like by accident. But when I look at the through line to my life, it really has all been connected. To begin with, I grew up with a brother who is autistic. His name is Danny, and he is the most wonderful person. He's my favorite human being in the whole world. And I remember our parents telling me and my other siblings that Danny had autism. I was probably around grade four or five, and he was grade one or two when they told us. And that changed a lot of things for me because he went from being my sort of annoying little brother who stole the spotlight out from under me to a person that I I nurtured and I saw how he was treated by the world and it really I really took it upon myself to try and and help him to develop school skills and so that everyone could see the potential he had and see what I saw in him. And I remember around the time they told us I remember walking past his classroom. I think I was taking the attendance to the office or something like that and I heard a teacher yelling at a student, and I, of course, peeked in. The teacher was yelling at my brother, and they were saying, answer me, answer me in a very loud voice, and I could just see him, his eyes cast down to the ground, his whole body made, looked like he wanted to be invisible, and I, it just made me so mad because I thought, don't they understand? Yelling at him isn't going to get anything from him. That's not what he responds to. And at the time I didn't understand the teacher perspective very well. I didn't understand there wasn't a lot of knowledge about autism at the time. This is the early 90s and especially not autism in individuals who have language skills. He also had a developmental disability so teachers were often very baffled by him and I started working with him on homework every day, trying to help him with things that were hard for him, even though some of them were hard for me, too. I'm terrible at math, but I would find ways to work Bowser and Mario and Luigi into math problems and just try and find a hook into the learning and We did the same thing with swimming. He was very afraid of swimming underwater, putting his face in the water. And we pretended we were in video games, diving for rings, which were gold coins. And so all this time I was learning so much about good teaching without even thinking that that was a possible path for me. I I ended up going to theater school. I got an undergraduate degree in theater and anthropology. And shortly after that, my parents said, okay, but what are you really going to do? Theater pays no money. And they were right, it paid no money. And so I somewhat grudgingly agreed to develop a drama program for children with autism. Uh, It was an opportunity that presented itself. And while I was doing that, I had one of those aha moments that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is where my talents are leading me. And this is what I can do with a theater degree. And so then I enrolled in a master of teaching program and started taking all sorts of courses on autism, sort of certification courses, uh, as much PD as I could, could manage. I read tons of books and one thing just led to another. And then I, my first long-term occasional position as a teacher was in an autism classroom. And then my first permanent position was also in a program for children with autism, a withdrawal program where they come one day a week for three years. And I'm still teaching that program today. And I'm in my 10th year of teaching. Wow,
1: that's great. Um, First of all, I love so much that as a a neurotypical sister to a younger sibling who is neurodiverse, you took the angle of, I wanna help him, Because I feel like that relationship can be really hard for some kids, neurotypical kids, particularly because the neurodiverse child or the child on the spectrum often takes a lot of the attention away from the other siblings. So what an amazing natural angle for you to take to... Be the person who wanted to support your brother and to show that kind of love and to share that and to help him. And the video game thing is just genius because I know how much my kids love them. And uh this is not about them, obviously, but that kind of stuff fascinates kids. So if you can if you can find that angle to get them to try something, that's just exactly. and you did that when you were so young. I mean, that's amazing. Good for you. You obviously tapped into what he loved and are a natural teacher because um, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that. Let's talk a bit about your book because you've written a book called The Autism Lens and it's a book for teachers and it's about connection with students. It's about building confidence and it's about promoting classroom learning. And as you can see, I have it right here because I've been reviewing it again. I found this book so interesting because one of the things that I think parents can struggle with these days is teachers are not necessarily trained or prepared to have neurodiverse kids in their classroom. And I think a lot of public school systems don't provide the resources or don't have the budgets to provide enough of the resources that teachers need. And so this book is such a concise and amazing way for teachers to learn some of these things. I mean, I just love reading through it. And there's so many tips. There's so many resources. There's so many just little things. Like one of the things I loved was take a look at a test from someone else's perspective because too many words can be overwhelming. I'm paraphrasing, but too many words can be overwhelming. So like a little tip like that for a teacher can make all the difference in the world for someone. I would love to know what sort of led to you writing the book and Are there any stories or aha moments that you can tell us about that um, obviously you took your master's in education and and decided to become a teacher, but what then sort of led you to, to create this, what I would say, guide for a teacher who maybe doesn't have time to go back to school to learn about all of this stuff, but can pick up this book and find so many just little tips that will make such a big difference?
2: First of all, it's funny you say that. I called one of my friends who was a teacher for 31 years last night. I was a little nervous about this. And I was like, what would you say about my book? And she said, the wonderful thing about it is it's a grab and go kind of book. You can read it from start to finish and your perspective will definitely be broadened. But if you don't have time for that, because as teachers, we are hard pressed for time. If you have a specific classroom concern, you can just look in the table of contents, read that chapter or a portion of that chapter, and all the strategies that you can try are right there. So certainly the whole book gives you a fuller perspective and a better brain-based understanding of why the strategies are effective, but you can use it however you want in whatever way works for you. I feel like everything in my life also culminated in the creation of this book. I have been delivering professional development workshops for teachers since I started teaching and even before that as a guest lecturer at universities. And I've been a sessional lecturer at OISE for two years now. So I teach teacher candidates. And I'm getting a lot of feedback from teachers and teacher candidates about what they're interested in learning in regards to autism and what would support them in supporting their students. And that's actually what my PhD dissertation was all about, because I had this magical group of students and I taught them for three years. And the first year, you know, there were always some growing pains. They're getting used to one another. But by the second year, they were referring to each other as brothers and just how much they were supporting one another. And I would sit back with the child and youth worker that I work with, Sonia, and we would just watch them sometimes and not teach a lesson because such beautiful, natural interactions were happening. I remember watching them and thinking, I wish every child with autism had something like this. And I wish schools were better set up. So that students could have these kinds of connections to others to understand themselves more. One of the students even said to me, Miss Diamond, when I come here, I don't feel like I'm autistic. We unpacked that. Like, what does that mean? So his association with autism is feeling different or feeling like he stands out or feeling like he doesn't do things the same way as other people. And in this one setting, that wasn't an issue. I don't really think that's credit to me. I I really think that's the magic of this group who supported one another so well. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, what if I can help more students by helping more teachers? So they really inspired me to go back to school for the PhD. And then... Out of that, which was on teacher professional development needs relating to supporting students with autism, out of that came the book, essentially, because every every workshop I gave was really, here's what I want teachers to know, here's what my students want teachers to know. And so when the opportunity presented itself to write a book, the writing was actually quite easy because all of the topics I've been delving into and teaching teachers about for years
1: what I love about the book is that it addresses so many different things. But one of the things that I love is that it addresses building relationships. And I think with kids like this, it's so important for them to know that you have their back and that you're on their side. And so if you can teach other people that, and I know you say that, you know, you saw the relationships as being that uh, creating that place that kids felt safe. But I think that if you, I think you initially had to create that place so that they felt safe being able to, become brothers and be those kids. But I think if you can teach other teachers to understand that one of the major things is that kids understand that you have their back, that you're on their side, and that you, you know, you're not always going to necessarily understand them and you're not always going to be able to address all their needs. But if they know that you support them, it will make such a big difference in the world. And I just think that's such a great gift that you can give to people.
2: And you really get so much farther with that that rapport. And it wasn't... I remember struggling in my first year or two with particular students that I got into power struggles with, but I learned. I learned how to change my approach to be more supportive and to understand behaviors really calling on me to do something to change the environment or change the way I'm doing things to be more supportive.
1: Well, and I think that's so important because I think in a lot of cases, people think, well, I've set the rules and it's my way or the highway. And if you don't work within my box, then this isn't going to work. And I think that um, being able to see outside of that box a little bit and just understand is so key to allowing these kids to trust you and then having that relationship with them so that you can then go on and help them with Uh, becoming better students and and becoming um, and having better relationships and understanding the system and managing their executive function and all of those things that you touch on in the book, which is, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about with respect to that. Okay, some of the other things that I really, really love about your book, you don't just talk about how to teach, you talk about, again, building that relationship. But then you also talk about understanding behaviors, You know why does a child react the way they do? Why do they have these big feelings? I big feelings thing is so important for people to understand the lack of working memory, which is so hard for so many kids. You know, it's just gone. It can be just gone. And I love how you address um, those things in connection with the entire uh, classroom situation. You know, we're bringing these kids into the classroom, but they need to understand how to have a relationship with the other kids, how to have a relationship with the teacher and how you guide them in that. So I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about your overall theory in terms of um, how you bring a child into the classroom, what your strategies are for um, making sure that they can connect with the other students in the room and just how you work with them um, from a test perspective or from a, from a learning perspective, just so that we can share that with other people. I also really want to talk about, and this is gonna, this will come next. But I also really want to talk about um, t- this book being for teachers, but this book also being for parents because I think there's a lot of really relevant information in your about that. So maybe we can sort of touch on those two things over the next little bit. So in terms of the kids coming into the classroom and understanding behavior, one of the things I read was your quote or was the quote in the book, not your quote, but a quote in the book, the children who need love the most will show it in the most unloving ways. And I think that's such an important thing for teachers to understand because with a neurotypical child, you wouldn't necessarily see that. But with a neurodiverse child or with a child on the spectrum, there's going to be things like meltdowns that aren't about trying to get their own way, or it's not like a temper tantrum. It's a, it's a need, right? It's, it's, a, it's how they express need. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how you address that and your experiences and maybe some stories about how that's happened for you?
2: I really like how you express that. It's how they express need. And it takes time to learn this. But what I've found is that if we have the perspective that behavior is a child being willfully defiant or a child who just is unmotivated, we actually make ourselves powerless when we say those things because we're writing them off. We we aren't envisioning our capacity to change things for that child. And a more productive lens, and I take this from Dr. Ross Green and his collaborative and proactive solutions, you always have to try and understand why a behavior is happening, and also understanding that usually it's a sign that our demands are currently exceeding their capacity. So something we are asking them to do is too hard in this moment. It doesn't mean it will always be hard, but right now it's a sign that it's not working. And it's much more productive to think, what is the skill this child needs to help with developing than just writing it off as, oh, there are They don't want to do the work. They don't care about their learning. So when we use a lens that investigates what's going on and talking to the child to get their insights, not when they're in the throes of a meltdown, obviously, but later on, once they're calm, you can get to the root of an issue quite quickly. And often it'll be something you would never have predicted. So this book really is about perspective taking from the child's lens Not that there is one autism lens, but every single child, you want to get to the root of their perspective by inviting their insights. So I'll tell you a story. In my first year, I had a student who was just, he was not interested in me as a teacher. He didn't like that I was replacing his previous teacher he'd had for two years. And maybe the first day, I remember he shredded paper over my head and every time i tried to show a video on the interactive smartboard he would run up and start pressing all the buttons and you know you can't override it on the computer so he's picking other videos in the sidebar and i'm going oh my goodness this is a disaster and every week when he came to the program it was like that and i left feeling terrible and so I started to recite that Russell Barkley quotation you mentioned, children who need the love the most often ask for it in the most unloving ways. And that became like my mantra on the way home from work, on the way to work. And it helped me to shift my perspective. This isn't a power struggle or it was a power struggle, but power struggles aren't helpful. I need to change something I'm doing so that this is not the response that I'm getting. And so I did something that might seem counterintuitive, I started to sit down with him every morning when he came in and we would do an activity together. We would, I remember making a class banner and he hated coloring, but I said, I will color for you. You can draw the boxes, draw the words, what should we put on the banner? Okay, what color do you want me to make the letters? And we would do little things together and I would give him all of this positive attention. And over time, the behavior shifted. And the other thing I was doing was just looking for ways that I could give him leadership opportunities. So even if it was, we're coming back from recess and I hand him my classroom keys and I say, you can go unlock the door. I can see him. He's not getting into the classroom before me, but, but just showing him that I trusted him. And that was so huge because I feel like our children with autism are micromanaged in so many ways and they aren't used to being in positions of responsibility. So when I started to look for ways that I could build that in and he started to enjoy being treated that way, it really changed our dynamic in very powerful ways. But I've also had instances where a child gets very upset and we have to do a lot more collaborative problem solving together. So after a challenging moment, and I like to think of them as moments because moments pass. Right. (laughs) (laughs) When everyone is calm, we can sit down and say, okay, so you seem to be a little upset. What was happening for you? What made you feel so upset? What did you want to happen? And often what they share is not what I would have thought at all. So it's, it's so essential that we not just jump to conclusions about what we think the problem is. We need to make room for their perspective. And then we can say, okay, well, you pushed Jimmy at snack time And you're telling me you did that because you wanted some personal space. Okay, that's fair. I want you to have that personal space, but I don't want you to get it by pushing Jimmy. Is there another way you can get that where you don't get in trouble? Everyone is happy. It works out. Like, what are some other things that we can do for next time? Right. And so then we're able to generate ideas
1: together. And And you sort of put them in that power position too, where they instead of you telling them what to do, you're giving them the power to make the decision, which is also really, um, I mean, powerful for a child, right? To understand, like giving the giving the child the keys.
2: Exactly. And I find the first time I collaboratively problem solve, I have to do a little bit more sometimes of the, well, what do you think about this idea? Right. But once they realize that I trust what they say, that I'm willing to try out their ideas, and we can always come back to the drawing board if something doesn't work, then it's remarkable the change that happens and and the openness that I, I get from students because they now know they're not going to get in trouble with me. I will tell them, you know, I don't like that this happened, but our goal when we're problem solving is how do we improve things in the future? And if there's anything we need to repair immediately, like, you know, maybe you should apologize to Jimmy. Right, You can course. talk about that, but in a non-judgmental way. It, it's really about growth. It's really about learning for both the child and for me, because maybe there's something I need to be doing that is more supportive.
1: And that's why I think, why I love that you call it the autism lens, because a lens is something that can be changed. And I'm assuming that's why you, you named it that. Exactly. A lens is something that you can see through in different ways. And it's such a perfect way of thinking about it, you know? I need to change my lens a little bit to understand the situation. I'm assuming that's why you named it that.
2: (laughs) Yes, essentially, that's why. Seeing from that perspective and just, I always find that the grand irony is when you hear about autistic children, a lot of the research will say things like they have trouble perspective taking. And while there is some truth to that, I find the reverse is even more true. Mm -hmm. It's the adults who often make assumptions or have difficulty understanding
1: An invisible disability. A hundred percent. And things change all the time and you need to be able to uh, respond accordingly, not react, but respond accordingly, which is also why I love your thing about ARG, A-R-R-G-H. I love that. Accept the situation, reflect, don't react, respond after you calm down and then you'll have good health. I love that. That's just such a great little um, tidbit. Another use that all the the time. (laughs) I bet you do. And as a parent, I think, you know, I'm not a teacher, I am a parent, but that kind of information, just to think in that in that way, is so amazing and so valuable. So we were talking about your teaching and your relationships and building your relationships and having that trust. Can we talk a little bit more about just the more I would call the technical um details about teaching, like that little tip about making sure your test is not, there's not too many words on a test so that, you know, someone who maybe doesn't have a great working memory or is not a great reader or or gets overwhelmed by that kind of stuff can manage. Can you talk about some of those things that are so important from a teacher's perspective and a student's perspective as well?
2: Using very clear language is really important for students with autism. And I get reminders of these all the time from my students. One of my students who was in grade seven told me that in her general classroom setting, she hears and is able to recognize figurative language often, like the different idioms that we use. But she doesn't know what it means. And so she saves up these examples in her brain to Google when she gets home. And I just think the amount of processing power that takes, like she's using up all her working memory to remember these examples, to try and figure out what someone means. And then it's taking away the chance to understand what's going on in the moment. Right. Because all of her mental energy is going into that. So... We use figurative language. I'm not suggesting teachers not use it, but when we catch ourselves using figurative language, trying to explain it so that everyone knows what we're talking about. And using visuals is so important because it's a quicker way to access knowledge and understanding and you're removing the the need to process verbal information or, or written language comprehension. And one of my students last year told me this, one of the students came to the program, let's call this student Jimmy. Jimmy came in and shared that over the weekend he played a game of pool and the other students didn't know what pool was. So Jimmy and I had a very animated discussion about it. We mimed pool cues with the meter stick. We talked about the green felt top of the table, the pockets in the corners, how there were different types of balls. We explained the entire game ad nauseum. And then the next week I came in and I had a mini pool set for the class to play because I just thought it was a great connection to something that Jimmy had brought in.
1: And Jimmy must have loved that. Oh, yes, of course. Right. I mean, that's amazing. Again, another one of those connection points that's so important.
2: Yeah. Trying to remember what they say and following up. Super important. Mm -hmm. But I brought in the set and one of the other students said, Miss Diamond, the whole time you and Jimmy were talking about pool, I thought you were talking about a swimming pool. You really should have pulled up a picture. Oh. And I went, you are absolutely right. And I should know better. <laughs> Isn't that
1: funny? You know? Yeah. Well, and it makes so much sense. Do you find that more more kids on the spectrum are visual learners generally? Or is that is that a misconception on my part?
2: My sense is the majority are, but there are definitely some who are not and who have better auditory skills. I've had students who don't recognize faces, so their, their powers of visualization don't translate to all domains. So I think it's always important to give information in as many modalities as possible. So having the visuals, having step by step not overwhelming them with all of the instructions before they need it. I really like using a strategy I call the chunk and check-in. And I tell parents about this too because it's great for homework time where you sort of have a mini conference and you say, okay, what are you going to work on first? All right, I want you to do, uh, you know, these three questions. And then you check back in and then you give the next amount. So they're not overwhelmed by how much to do, which can really impact anxiety. And that can, of course, impact getting started on the work at all. If you feel completely overwhelmed by the number of steps you have to do, it's really difficult. So it's a way of breaking things down and giving one piece at a time or a couple of pieces at a time and then reinforcing that and then helping them to stay on track.
1: Well, and that's a great life lesson, too, like in terms of Um, learning how to do homework, but also like, that's a big executive function thing just in general in life. Right. So understanding that you have a project ahead of you that has multiple steps. If you can do one or two at a time, take a break, do a couple more, take a break. That's an, that's a huge life lesson Mm -hmm. in general. So if you can learn that as a, as a child or as a teen in school, Imagine how that would translate to just life in general. And there must be so many lessons like that, that you talk about in the book and that you share with your kids that must just help them as they grow and as they move on in their lives.
2: You know, the other day I was conferencing virtually with a student and this year we've been goal setting, but the goals have all been selected by the children. So they select one thing they want to work on at school one thing they want to work on at home, and then they, they self-assess how they're doing on a daily basis in both wow. of those settings. And this student challenged himself for a home goal of, I will listen to my parents and I'll try to do what they ask me to do. And I thought that was a great goal, very difficult goal for many of us in mm-hmm. general. But when we were reviewing his last two weeks, his marks skyrocketed. And I said, wow, you're doing amazingly well with this. What helped you? And he said, Miss Diamond, I just remembered what you said. Do your have-to-dos before your (laughs) (laughs) want-to-dos. And that just made my heart swell so much because, first of all, you never know if you're going to say something that lands. So it's really nice and rewarding when it does. But also that he could take that information and translate it into his own life. I certainly don't do that all the time. I have a lot of have-to-dos that get put off. Um,
1: Of course. I used to always clean my room before I studied for exams. I mean, it yeah. was, you know, I didn't have to do that, but I didn't want to study for my exams. <laughs> it's
2: always amazing all the little things we can find to do to put
1: up. Okay, <laughs> <true. isn't> <laughs> Even cleaning something So but, true.
2: Yeah, I try to adapt strategies to the level of the child and check in with them, see what works. And I learned so many strategies from them because they'll say, you know what really helped me? I did this or I thought about it this way. Right. And then I can pass that on to other children too.
1: And I think that is all of that information is so valuable and and so, as I said, so important to learn because you're teaching kids in the elementary schools, right? So you're teaching kids that are what age are you teaching right now?
2: Right now, they're all about grade six, seven, and I have some grade eights. So they're so
1: if they can learn that now, the benefit in their life is so huge. if they learn that before high school because they'll take that with them and they'll be able to manage anything, really. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Um, I love that I love that so I think one of the one of the challenges of course for teachers these days is the number of kids in the classroom. Um, you know integration is incredible and I think that I'm all for it I think it's amazing that that neurodiverse and neurotypical kids can be in the same classroom and can work together and I think from a neurotypical child's point of view it's so important to understand that, there are some kids that have disabilities that you can't see and you need to learn how to be accepting and you need to learn how to be empathetic and you need to learn that, you know, like we were talking about before, a meltdown is not a temp- is not a temper tantrum. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but a meltdown is not a temper tantrum. It's neat. And so if you see a child responding that way, maybe there's something you can do to help. And I think learning that at a young age is so important for kids. I think though, that it's also a challenge for teachers. So What's your advice for a teacher who is in a classroom with thirty kids, which is happening now, um, and maybe they have one or two neurodiverse kids or kids on the spectrum in their classroom. Um, I mean, obviously, reading your book is really helpful, but do you have other advice for teachers who are <laughs> who are in that position? It's probably advice from the book. but how do you how do you sort of teach these teachers who don't have this training?
2: So many teachers already intuitively have strategies, and that's wonderful, and I think our intuition is important, and our creative approaches are important, and knowing some of the evidence-based strategies are helpful too. They don't always work, which is why we also need our intuition and creativity uh, and our relationship to the child. So the first thing is really thinking about the environment of the classroom. And understanding, too, that just like we would never ask a child with an auditory impairment or a visual impairment to suddenly be able to do those things, and we we have to adapt our communication in similar ways for children on the spectrum. Research actually shows that autistic folks communicate very well with autistic folks, Neurotypical folks communicate very well with neurotypical folks, but when you put them together, it becomes like a game of broken telephone. So when we expand our capacity to communicate with children on the spectrum, those are skills that help everyone in the room. It's adding to our toolkit as teachers. So it's not about changing the child. It's about taking their perspective to inform our teaching. So starting with the environment and understanding how environments can impact sensory processing is really important. So before students even arrive in your classroom in September, thinking about the layout, do you have a safe spot where any of the students in the class can go if if they need a break? Are you teaching things like mindfulness and different ways to channel our energy? Um, Because you can teach that to the whole class and have sensory bin with free access fidget tools available to everyone. Mm -hmm. And at first there's like novelty and everyone wants to use all the, the, the squeeze balls and things that you have. But after the novelty wears off, it tends to be used by the students who need it the most. Right. And you also teach the rules around using those things so that there's a difference between tool versus toy. Right. Yeah. And And putting these things in place and making sure that there are breaks throughout the day for everyone really lowers the chances of a meltdown happening because you're then helping students, all students in your class to manage energy throughout the day.
1: I was going to say that. I mean, that having those rules for everyone is such a great way to do it because then it's not an exception Mm-hmm. for a certain child, right? And then it becomes
2: like, you know, kids always ask, well, why does he get this? And right. you can certainly say, well, I, I give all children what they need, and this is yeah. something he's working on, just like you're working on XYZ. Right. And the other thing I think about it, too, is we're also modeling through our interactions with that child how the class should treat that child. So if a child's getting upset, I'm not screaming at that child. I'm modeling support and I'm telling the class, okay, if everyone gets upset sometimes, what we don't like when we're upset is people staring at us or talking to us. So just like Jimmy is needs a break right now, when you're upset, I'm going to allow you to take a break. And we always have to challenge our, our own expectations. I've had to right. think about this quite a bit. Do I really care if a child is seated at a desk during a work period, they can stand, they could work under the desk if they want. If it's helping them to accomplish the goals that I have, why not allow it? And certainly with my students, I will teach them what the neurotypical expectations are.
1: Of course.
2: Um, Like we'll talk about what does listening look like? So I remember observing one of my students in his class and he was about grade four at the time. And a lesson, a beautiful lesson was going on. And my student was the only one out of his chair. He's in the back of the classroom, hands in the markers, you know, putting glue on his hands. And so I got his attention and I beckoned him over. And I said, does your teacher think you're listening? He goes, I am. And I said, but does she think you are? Are you giving her any of the look force?" Ah. Like, no. and so then we can talk about can you give those look for us? Because he might not be able to look and listen at the same time. That's fine. So then we can strategize. Can you look at the blackboard instead of the teacher? Because it's difficult to process social information. And of course, academics are delivered through a social being. So of it makes it really difficult. Yeah. So what can you do? Can you doodle? but you can only doodle if you can also show that you're retaining what's going on in the class. Can you use a fidget? And so then I can help the child problem solve and self-advocate. So if they really can't look and listen, then we can say, okay, well, what is comfortable for you?
1: Well, and that self-advocating is so important too, right? Being able to tell the teacher that you are listening, but you're not going to do it in the same way as maybe some of the other kids in the class. And that's Again, another amazing life lesson that you can teach them from a young age, which is so important.
2: And then they're teaching teachers, right? That teacher is going to be better prepared for the next child that they have.
1: Right. Exactly. For teachers to learn from their students is so important and it's is such a great way of looking at it too, as opposed to just being the only teacher in the room. There may be thirty teachers in the room, and we all have to be open to to learning from each other all the time. So I think that's amazing. And I'll, I also loved your point earlier about um, which I didn't, which I wasn't able to comment on yet, but just that positive reinforcement and how you talked about, you know, taking what is often a negative interaction because these kids often have more negative reinforcement than positive reinforcement and switching that balance Mm -hmm. to make sure that you find something and sometimes it can be the smallest thing to just say say something positive about and i think that is such a big thing for for kids in a classroom like this because um again it goes back to that trust and that knowing Mm -hmm. that they have your back and 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 building that relationship so that they are going to learn from you and that you're going to learn from them and that and that they'll respond, right? So I think that's, that's amazing. So the thing that I love about the book as well is it's not just about the teacher. It's not just about teaching. It's about creating a relationship with the child. It's about creating relationships in the classroom and making sure that kids understand how to interact with each other. You know, I, I read your little story about uh, the video game and about the child calling the other child names. And you know, you see that all the time, right? Where kids get into a game and they can become very sort of combative and competitive. And so, so talking that down is so important so that they can learn how to build those relationships and what, you know, like what you were talking about before, better ways and better perspectives and a different lens to look at to look at these things so that they can they can be more uh, compassionate and they can build those social relationships. Because social relationships are so important too. And I think that, um, you know, your book addresses that. But the other thing that I love is about partnering with parents and, you know, it is a village and it takes a village. And so let's talk a little bit about that, about what your recommendations for partnering with parents and how you manage that relationship and just how that, that should work or, or your perspective on how that should work.
2: So there's no question partnering with parents is a foundation for success. You work with parents, you make sure they know what you're working on, that you're inviting their perspective to, and the (laughs) child is going to get much farther. And everyone is going to grow in their understanding when you work together. And it can be hard because sometimes you'll have parents you don't necessarily agree with everything on, or maybe they don't have as informed an opinion about autism. You know, I've had parents from different cultural backgrounds who refer to it as a disease or just don't don't have the tools or weren't given the information that they needed. And so again, it's it's sort of like when we talk with the child. We're, we try to approach it from a non-judgmental place and understanding that's where they are right now. And then working on building their perspective as well. I've actually had a couple of parents that I have worked with previously who have read the book and they said even now that their child is older, they found strategies in the book that are helpful to them. And they realized, you know, maybe I should not yell as much because the message gets lost. And, oh, this is why that's so difficult for my child. So I sort of see that as my job, is connecting with the child and then helping the child to better connect to parents, family, guardians, whoever happens to be at home and their teachers. So Because often the child won't, necessarily share as much at home. And it's just that, that third-party dynamic, right? Yeah, <laughs> all children are like that. They form different relationships with different people. And so they'll tell me things. They'll say, you know what? I really hate that the car is so messy. Well, have you told your parents? No. <laughs> so then we'll right. talk about, well, how do you bring things up to your family that could help you? Or you're having difficulty, problem-solving a relationship with your sibling. You're fighting all the time and you'll ask the ch- the other sibling to stop and they don't stop. Well, what do you do next? You could get your parents to help, you could walk away, but the parents need to know what the plan is so that they can reinforce it. So if I'm telling the child to go find a space on their own to calm down and the sibling is trailing behind them, not giving them that space, no, the parent needs to know so they can intervene and say, no, your brother or sister is calming down right now. We need to give them space. Working together just strengthens everything.
1: I think that's so important, and I think that it is a team. It's a team situation no matter how you look at it, and... Um I think as a teacher, it must be fantastic when you find those parents who are open to partnering. I know that that's not necessarily always the case, but when you can find a parent that's interested in partnering. And I also think that from a parent's perspective, it must be so important to understand what you're doing in the classroom, because you're right, like reinforcing at home is important for home, but it's also important for the classroom. And as we were talking about these life lessons, if you're teaching kids to do things in chunks, maybe when you're... Um, trying to help your child clean their room, you yes. chunk it out, right? So it becomes it becomes a school thing, it becomes a social thing, and it becomes a home thing, and that's that's just so valuable. And I so I think your book, although it is, I think predominantly for teachers, I think it can be very helpful from a parent perspective as well, not only in um, that reinforcement, but also in understanding how to communicate with your teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have a teacher that doesn't understand that. I'm going to go back to the test example again, because that one just got me, but maybe there's a teacher that doesn't understand that too many words on a page is too difficult for your child. So maybe you've been able to go back to them when you're in an IEP process or when you're just having an interview and saying, you know, it would be really helpful if,
2: yes, you know, you, you could do this. You can ask for those accommodations and right. they may or may not be able to give them to you, but certainly it's, an important tool for you as a parent to know some reasonable things you can potentially ask for.
1: Right. And I think that's so important as a parent, because if you don't ask at all, you're never going to get. So just, just having that conversation and having that partnership with the teacher to be able to say, you know, I think it would be helpful if, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in a lot of cases, the teacher would be able to accommodate that. I know that time and, um, number of kids in the classroom and all of those things can can um, be a significant to have a significant impact on the extras but I think if you have reasonable requests and you go with them the worst case scenario is they're going to say no and at least you've expressed your concerns and and been able to um, to try you know to try because if you don't try you're not going to get what you need and So at the very least you can have that conversation and hope that you can come to some um, resolution together or or, um, um, you can collaborate to create a plan that's going to work for everybody, for the teacher, for the parents, and for the child.
2: And from a teacher perspective, and this is something I tell my teacher candidates too, is you develop these things that you can use in future years. So let's say you offer two different types of graphic organizers you can make it a choice to everyone in the room and children usually pick the thing that is at their level. Mm-hmm. So having a different like a different way that the test looks, you can make it a choice, choose which one you that resonates with you. Right. And that will help other students. It's not just for the, the autistic students. Right. It's for everyone in the room. And, and, and it's hard to develop lots of tools all the time. So I sometimes try just in this, this, one unit, I will develop a secondary tool. And then the next year, maybe I'll develop a third choice. And then I have that in my toolkit that I can always use when I teach this unit again.
1: Well, and that also goes to collaboration with teachers too, right? Like let's collaborate as teachers Mm -hmm. to make sure that we share our resources. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, my children are in the TDSB, and I know that they do have a team that can come out and help teachers with some of the resource needs. So you know, once you have them for one child, you're right. Like, let's build on them. Let's grow them. Let's keep them for the next child that may need them. And uh, let's be open to, to using them and to figuring out ways to, um, to support the kids that way. I think that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. So do you find that you do a lot of collaborating with other teachers?
2: Yes. So part of my job, so I have between 16 and 18 students any given year. And because they come to me one day a week. This year is a bit different because it's the pandemic. So it's very different. But in a normal year, students come to me one day a week and they're in their mainstream classroom the other four days of the week. And I teach three days and the other two days are planning and consulting. So I visit the classrooms. I develop resources. If a teacher says, you know, here's something I'm struggling with, I will collaboratively problem solve with them. Well, what do you think could work? What do you find is successful with this child? When are they? meeting success because maybe we can take some ideas from that and apply to these times that are harder for them. And so, yeah, this year I've helped teachers develop different ways of presenting project steps. So instead, again, instead of big blocks of text, can we do a checklist of steps in order Right, And then I'll work with parents too to take those checklists and help the child map them out on a calendar. What are we going to do today? You don't have to do it all in one sitting. And often our students are perfectionists. They really want to finish that thing. It's hard to transition. So teaching them the process of learning and that it's okay to approach something larger over a longer period of time. I will Mm. say that to them. Your teacher assigned this and it's due in three weeks. They actually expect you to take the whole three weeks to do the final project.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I think that during the pandemic, your book is also really important because I think it could also really help parents who are trying to manage at-home learning homeschooling, for lack of a better word, and all of this virtual learning, which in Ontario, I think we're about to go into again. Um, And I think your book could be so beneficial for parents just to understand a lot of those um, just little important tips that could help them. Because let's face it, as a parent, I am not a teacher. No, I am not a teacher. And I am also working so I'm working from home and I'm trying to get my kids through virtual learning. As I flipped through your book, there were just so many little points there that, that I think could help me. Sorry, that's my dog barking in the background again. Um, that could help me with just helping them get through the day. Well, Kara, I just want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I know it's it's never enough when you're talking about things like this, because I think that this teacher-student and teacher family relationship is so important. And I think, you know, I personally could talk about it for hours. I could sit and have a coffee with you and talk about it for hours. But yeah. your book, again, Kara Diamond, The Autism Lens. It's a book for teachers, but it's also a book for parents, I think, in terms of understanding classroom dynamics, building relationships with students, understanding how your teacher is responding to your to your child and maybe uh, collaborating on that relationship. There's just so many things in your book that are so um, helpful and so um, supportive for parents, you know, understand how to promote learning, like how to. How to help your children learn better in a classroom, which I think is, you know, every parent wants their child to be able to to learn at their very best, and so the tips, all of the things in your book, lead to that at the end of the day, and I think that that is so important for a teacher and also for a parent to understand. So, uh, parents, teachers, everyone, take a look at Kara's book because it is invaluable in terms of classroom learning, in terms of relationships, and and in terms of collaboration. I think that, um, you know, understanding behaviors, which you talk about is so important, Uh, understanding stressors that children um, have placed on them when they're in a classroom. There's so many stressors that we don't even think about because they're different for everyone, and I think understanding those stressors is so important.
2: Also understanding to forgive yourself. We are all making mistakes on this journey. We are all learning. You will try something as a parent or as a teacher and it won't work or it will fail abysmally. And that's okay. We learn from it. We try something different next time. It's none of us have all of the answers. So I think also understanding it's okay not to know, it's okay to ask for help. Um, And having those collaborations are really a support system for you, whether you're a teacher or a parent.
1: Well, and having that and having an outlet for yourself is so important too. Being able to just, you know, like you said, you're so happy to be home having a little bit of a break right now and just being able to relax. It doesn't matter how much you love your students or your children. It's nice to have a break once in a while. Let's face it because it's, it, it is, it is intense at times. So being able to take a break from that and just take care of yourself and some self-care is really important. And I think you're right. Forgiving yourself as a parent and as a teacher is so important because the other thing is some things are going to work with one child, but they're not going to work with another child. And it is a bit of trial and error, right? So so allowing yourself that space to try something, and if it doesn't work, try something else is so important.
2: And you're modeling uh, that for the kids, right? They exactly. It's okay that you didn't get it perfectly. That's all right. You come back to the table, you try something else.
1: Right. And that that is that is probably one of the most important things is that kids need to understand that because i think it's really easy to give up and and learning that persistence pays off is is so important and try try you know try, as my mom always used to say try try again or whatever the expression was if you don't if you first you don't succeed try try again right that's the old expression um, thank you again so much for being with, maybe you could just share with, uh, with everyone who's listening about your website and about what's available there and how people can connect with you. Um,
2: well, my website, caradiamond.com, you can also access it through the autismlens.com. I bought multiple domains that all go to the same place. Perfect. <laughs> it me easier to find. Yeah. So I try to post Uh, something each week. I might take a break over the holidays, but I try to post resources. So there are uh, reproducibles for teachers. There's virtual teaching tips up right now. And I also have a blog that has uh, stories and information. And sometimes I bring in guests to help me out with that. So I'm trying to keep that up to date. If there's something that a parent or a teacher wants to see, I invite them to reach out to me by email or find me on Twitter. I have a Facebook page, so find me. I invite you to contact me. I'm always happy to help brainstorm and to support you in developing strategies and I would love to hear from teachers and parents what works for them as well, because the more strategies I collect from people, the more I can help everyone.
1: That's amazing. I love that your relationship with your brother led to you becoming his his teacher in a lot of ways, and then um, and then allowed you to become this amazing resource and teacher and um, collaborator. It's just, it's such a great story. And I so appreciate you being with me today. Um, you know, it's almost the holidays, so it's a busy time of year, but I really appreciate you taking the time. The book is amazing. And, um, we will be sharing all of your social and website information on the podcast and on our social media so that people can find you. So be prepared. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate, I mean, I've learned so much. And so I know that this will be a valuable uh, podcast as well as um, book for so many others. So thank you. Thank you so
2: much. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Stay tuned for more episodes of Sharing the Spectrum, and Autism Canada podcast. The beautiful music you heard is from Bruce Pethrick Bruce is a neurodiverse musician and friend of Autism Canada. You can check out more of his music on his website at brucepetrick.com. Our executive producer is Barbara Patton. Julie Perkis is our producer. Additional thanks to the Autism Canada team, including Tafari Anthony, Shannon Zelensky, Dominique Payment, Mariana Kurik, and Earl Zelensky. For more information about Autism Canada, don't forget to visit us at autismcanada.org. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.